Hello, and welcome to this podcast of the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. I'm Judy Sondheimer. This podcast will summarize selected articles from the June 2010 issue of JPGN. A complete table of contents and access to complete articles can be found online at www.jpgn.org or via the Society webpage at www.naspagan.org. The June issue is headed by an invited review titled Medical Management of Allergial Syndrome by Kamath, Loomis, and Piccoli. Allergial syndrome is a highly variable autosomal dominant disorder affecting the liver, heart, eyes, face, skeleton, kidneys, and vascular system. Genetic studies have indicated that the disorder is primarily a result of mutations in the notch signaling pathway ligand, JAGED1. The appropriate medical management of this condition is complex, and there are still many areas in which optimal therapy has not been established. The significant variability of organ involvement requires the managing physician to consider the interplay among the many manifestations that are unique to each patient. The liver disease, in particular, requires an appreciation of the natural history and evolution of the profound cholestasis associated with allergial syndrome. The authors have reviewed the literature on the medical management of allergial syndrome and have also added their own extensive experience to this interesting discussion. The first original article in the gastroenterology section is titled Effects of Zinc Exposure on Zinc Transporter Expression in Human Intestinal Cells of Varying Maturity by Jew, Phillips, Kelleher, and Lonerdahl. The authors state that zinc homeostasis in adults is achieved principally through a balance between intestinal zinc absorption and excretion, and involves adaptive mechanisms programmed by the levels of dietary zinc. Zinc absorption in infants is not as tightly regulated as it is in adults, and this lack of regulation is a potential source of toxicity in infants because of their relatively high capacity for zinc absorption. The authors hypothesize that intestinal zinc homeostasis is developmentally regulated and depends on intestinal maturation, which in turn affects zinc transporter regulation. Materials and Methods Cultures of human fetal intestinal cells and adult undifferentiated and differentiated CACO2 intestinal cells were used to determine developmental differences in zinc uptake and the effects of zinc exposure on zinc transporters. The authors found that zinc uptake rates in cultured fetal cells and in adult undifferentiated CACO2 cells were nine and threefold higher respectively than uptake rates in adult differentiated cells. Fetal cells were more intolerant to zinc exposure than were undifferentiated or differentiated adult cells. The LD50 of the fetal cells was 67.9 millimoles per liter of zinc, while the LD50s of undifferentiated adult cells and differentiated adult cells were much higher, at 117 and 224 millimoles per liter of zinc, respectively. 
Two mechanisms were involved in developmental regulation of zinc homeostasis, differential zinc transporter expression and differential response to zinc exposure. In fetal cells, the expression of the zinc-regulated transporter, iron-regulated transporter-like protein known as ZIP4 was undetectable. Zinc exposure at a concentration of 50 millimoles per liter increased the level of zinc transporter 1, zinc transporter 2, metallothionine 1-MRA, and zinc transporter 1 protein in fetal cells. Undifferentiated and differentiated adult cells had five and seven-fold higher mRNA expression of zinc transporter 1 and 2, and two and nine-fold higher mRNA expression of zinc transporter 2 than did fetal cells. Differentiated cells also had three-fold higher ZIP4 expression than undifferentiated cells. In undifferentiated adult cells, zinc exposure increased ZIP4 protein level, but not membrane-associated abundance. However, in differentiated adult cells, zinc exposure decreased both the ZIP4 protein level and membrane-associated abundance. The authors conclude that zinc absorption is developmentally regulated through intestinal zinc efflux, as well as sequestration and import mechanisms, which may be responsible for the differences in zinc absorption between infants and adults. The next original GI article is entitled Defensin mRNA Expression in the Upper Gastrointestinal Tract is Modulated in Children with Celiac Disease and Helicopylori Positive Gastritis by Vorden Bauman, Pilich, Ote, Schmitz, and Schmidt-Chowdhury. The authors state in their objectives that defensins are expressed in epithelial cells as cationic peptides with antimicrobial properties. Because of their role as immunologically important effector molecules, their contribution to the maintenance of a stable microenvironment in the gastrointestinal tract has recently received much attention. The present study was designed to further characterize expression patterns of defensins in diseases of the upper gastrointestinal tract in children, particularly in Helicobacter pylori-associated gastritis and celiac disease. Patients and Methods Semi-quantitative real-time reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, was carried out with gene-specific primers for human beta defensins 1 to 6 and human alpha defensins 5 and 6 in mucosal biopsies of 11 children with celiac disease who ranged in age from 4 to 16 years and in 18 children with H. pylori gastritis who ranged from 3 to 17 years of age. Levels of expression were compared with those of 21 healthy children of similar ages. The expression levels in H. pylori infected specimens were further compared with those in biopsies from 30 children with histologic gastritis not associated with H. pylori. Results. The expression of beta defensin 2 was upregulated in the antrum and corpus of patients with H. pylori gastritis, whereas there was no change in defensin gene expression in gastritis not associated with H. pylori. In patients with celiac disease, 
the expression of beta-defensin-2 was upregulated in the antrum, whereas beta-defensins-1 and 4 were downregulated in duodenal biopsies. The authors conclude that different pathologic conditions of the upper gastrointestinal tract lead to specific modulations of defense and gene expression in children, and suggest that the pathophysiologic role of human beta-defensin-2 in H. pylori gastritis and human beta-defensins-1 and 4 in celiac disease warrant further study. The last original GI article we will summarize is entitled Efficacy of Lactobacillus GG in Aboriginal Children with Acute Diarrheal Disease, a Randomized Clinical Trial by Ritchie, Brewster, Tron, Davidson, McNeil, and Butler. Objective. The effectiveness of probiotics as therapy for acute infectious diarrhea in a setting of underlying malnutrition and recurrent bacterial, viral, or parasitic enteric infection is unclear. In the present study, the authors assessed the efficacy of probiotics in Australian Aboriginal children from the Northern Territory admitted to the hospital with acute diarrheal disease. Patients and Methods in this randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study, Aboriginal children aged four months to two years admitted to the hospital with acute diarrheal disease defined as more than three loose stools per day were studied. In addition to needed fluid therapy, zinc, and vitamin A supplements, 33 children received oral lactobacillus GG, five times 10 to the ninth colony-forming units three times per day for three days. 31 children received a placebo. Small intestinal functional capacity was assessed by non-invasive C13 sucrose breath tests on days one and four of treatment. Results. Both groups showed improvement in the mean sucrose breath test after four days, as measured by the cumulative percentage of the sucrose dose recovered at 90 minutes. However, there was no difference between the improvements noted in the probiotic and the placebo treated groups in which 2.9 and 3.7% of the sucrose dose respectively was recovered. Probiotic use was not associated with any differences in the duration of diarrhea, total diarrheal stools, or diarrhea score compared with placebo. There was a significant difference in diarrhea frequency on day two between the probiotic-treated group, 3.3 loose stools per day, and the placebo group, 4.7 loose stools per day, which was significant at the P less than 0.05 level. Conclusions. Lactobacillus GG did not appear to enhance short-term recovery from acute diarrheal illness in this experimental setting. The first article in the Hepatology and Nutrition section is titled Endotoxin and Plasminogen Activator Inhibitor 1 Serum Levels Associated with Non-Alcoholic Steatohepatitis in Children by Alisi, Manco, DeVito, Piamonte, and Nobili. Objectives Recent evidence supports a role for endotoxemia in the progression from non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD, to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH. 
the authors investigated the association between serum levels of endotoxin, pro-inflammatory molecules, and histology in children with NAFLD. Patients and Methods A total of 40 children with a mean age of 11.9 years, 27 males and 13 females with biopsy-proven NAFLD were consecutively enrolled. Anthropometrics, blood pressure, and parameters of the metabolic syndrome were collected. Serum levels of endotoxin, plasminogen activator inhibitor 1 or PAI1, tumor necrosis factor alpha, and interleukin-6 were measured by an enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay and compared with circulating levels of the same soluble factors in nine age and sex-matched normal weight controls. Results. Children with NAFLD had markedly higher serum concentrations of endotoxin, PAI1, TNF-alpha, and interleukin-6 than control subjects with significance levels ranging from 0.05 to 0.001. Endotoxin, PAI1, interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, and body mass index were significantly associated with a NAFLD activity score equal to or greater than 5 by univariate analysis. Using stepwise regression analysis, endotoxin and PAI1 were the most significant predictors of NAFLD activity score with p-values of 0.001 and 0.009 respectively. Conclusions. The author's findings demonstrate that apart from TNF-alpha and interleukin-6, endotoxin and plasminogen activator inhibitor 1 may also be good markers of NASH. The findings also reinforce the hypothesis that elevated levels of endotoxin may contribute to the progression from NAFLD to NASH. The next Hepatology and Nutrition original article is titled Copper Supplementation in Parenteral Nutrition of Cholestatic Infants by Frem, Sarsen, Sternberg, and Cole. Background and Objectives it is standard practice to reduce or eliminate copper supplements in the parenteral nutrition of infants with cholestasis because of the risk of copper hepatotoxicity. However, there are reports of copper deficiency in cholestatic infants caused by the reduction in copper content of parenteral nutrition fluids. The objectives of the present study were to determine the proportion of cholestatic infants who developed elevated serum copper while receiving a standard, that is, a non-reduced dose of parenteral copper. To evaluate clinical factors that might potentially affect serum copper in cholestatic infants, and to evaluate the relationship between serum copper and liver disease. Patients and Methods This was a retrospective review of 28 cholestatic infants receiving 20 milligrams per kilogram per day of copper via parenteral nutrition. Age-adjusted references were used to determine the normality of study subjects' serum copper levels. Multiple, multiple linear regression analyses were performed to determine predictors of serum copper and alanine aminotransferase, or ALT. Results. 
serum copper levels were elevated in two of the 28 infants, or 7%. On average, infants received 80% of their energy intake from parenteral nutrition for three months. Intestinal failure was present in 50% of the patients. Birth weight, gestational age, and ALT were identified as predictors of serum copper. R squared equals 0.53, and P is less than 0.0001. Serum copper, gestational age, and total bilirubin were positively associated with serum ALT. R squared equals 0.43, with a p-value of 0.001. The authors conclude that supplementation of parenteral fluid with copper at 20 milligrams per kilogram per day does not lead to a significant increase in copper toxicity or worsening of liver disease in cholestatic infants. The next hepatology and nutrition original article is titled Titration of Bile Acid Supplements in 3-Beta-Hydroxy Delta-5-C27 Steroid Dehydrogenase Isomerase Deficiency by Riello, Dantiga, Guido, Alagio, Giordano, and Zancan. Objectives. 3-beta-hydroxy delta-5-C27 steroid dehydrogenase isomerase deficiency is a bile acid synthetic defect responsive to treatment with primary bile acids. We reviewed its clinical features and response to treatment with a mixture of ursodeoxycholic acid and kenodeoxycholic acid to evaluate the dose of supplements required for disease control. Patients and Methods we studied our patients by liquid chromatography, tandem mass spectrometry, liver function tests, and histology. After diagnosis, all of the patients received a balanced mixture of ursodeoxycholic acid and kenodeoxycholic acid, and the dose was titrated according to urinary levels of 3-beta-7-alpha-dihydroxy-5-cholinoic acid. Results. Three patients presented with giant cell hepatitis, biliary cirrhosis, and cryptogenic cirrhosis, respectively, and two patients were picked up by neonatal screening. The five patients were diagnosed at a median age of 2.5 years with a range of 0.1 to 5.5 years. Normal levels of 3-beta-7-alpha-dihydroxy-5-cholinoic acid were achieved after four months with a range of 3 to 28 months from the start of treatment. The minimum dose of ursodeoxycholic acid and kenodeoxycholic acid required to maintain normal 3-beta-7-alpha-dihydroxy-5-cholinoic acid levels was a mixture of 5 and 5 milligrams per kilogram per day of the two bile acids, respectively. A follow-up biopsy in two patients showed no progression of liver disease. Conclusions. A mixture of ursodeoxycholic acid and kenodeoxycholic acid can effectively control 3-beta-hydroxy, delta-5-C27 steroid dehydrogenase isomerase deficiency. Dose titration by liquid chromatography, 
tandem mass spectrometry indicates the maintenance of negative feedback on the abnormal synthetic pathway and avoids disease progression. This concludes the JPGN podcast for June 2010. There is more to read in this issue, including papers on esophageal motility in children with GERD, the use of pentoprazole in GERD, early feeding after percutaneous endoscopy, endoscopic gastrostomy, infliximab treatment of inflammatory bowel disease in Brazilian children, abdominal tuberculosis, renin-angiotensin system activation in congenital hepatic fibrosis, long-chain polyunsaturated fat supplementation in infant immune function, and antioxidant properties of breast milk in a cultured enterocyte system. For more information regarding the contents of this issue or to access the complete articles, go to the JPGN website at jpgn.org or the NASPGAN website at naspghan.org. JPGN is the official journal of ESPGAN and NASPGAN. The co-editors-in-chief are David Bransky and Eric Sibley. I'm Judy Sondheimer. <laughs>